And if you'll take your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 4. We're going to we're skipping over the genealogy here of Jesus. I'm going to talk about it here in a minute in the introduction, but we're we're going to move on to ch- chapter 4 and the first uh, 13 verses of that which deal with the temptation of Jesus. But by way of introduction here, we want to begin by taking note of the fact that Luke here records and what is recorded there from the first verse until this present location in uh, our in our text is but introductory material and it prepares the reader for the gospel that that Jesus will be delivering in his ministry Luke closes this introductory material with the genealogical record of Jesus on the other hand the uh, Matthew begins his gospel with this genealogy, tracing the ancestry of Jesus from Abraham through David and Solomon to Jesus. And this line is actually Joseph's roots to show that Jesus legally inherited the right to the throne of David through Joseph, even though Joseph was not his biological father. Matthew states, In chapter 1, verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So Matthew here is very clear that Joseph is not Jesus' father. He's merely the husband of Mary, who was the mother of Jesus. So, he was uh, the father. He was Jesus' legal father, but not in the natural sense, and only in the legal sense. And the reason I think is because Matthew wrote for the Jews, and thus it is logical that he should focus on this legal lineage of Joseph, with respect to the promise that God made to David that he would never lack a son to sit upon the throne. Luke, on the other hand, begins with Joseph and traces Jesus' ancestry back to Adam, since the gospel is universal in scope and includes Gentiles as well as Jews. Jesus is the second Adam who will face the temptation as the first Adam did and not fail as the first Adam did. Now, here's... A problem, though, that that arises when one reads Luke chapter 3, verse 21, which says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. I'm going to talk about that in a second here, too. Being the son, and then there's a parenthesis, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, who is Heli? He does not appear in Matthew's account at all. Matthew tells us that the father of Joseph was Jacob. But here's the problem. We misread it because of the parenthesis. What we need to do is take the words of Joseph 
and put them into the parenthesis. Now let me read, so read it like this. Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years of old, of age, excuse me, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. Parentheses. The son of Heli. Who's the son of Heli? It's Jesus. Not because here, here is one of those issues in the Greek there where the, the term son does not necessarily refer to his immediate re- relationship. But, and, but uh, the grandson, in this case, it's the grandson of Healy. Jesus is the grandson of Healy. And we would assume then that Healy was the was the father of Mary. So then, he's not the son of Joseph, or Healy is not Joseph's son, and Joseph was is not related to Healy. But Jesus is the grandson here of Healy. So do. We have two different genealogical records, and we know this because the Luke's genealogical record traces the ancestry of Jesus back through Nathan, not Solomon. So this is Mary's lineage. Jesus here is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. Now let me uh, go back here to the, the statement that he was about 30 years of age. And here again, Luke is careful. He says he was about 30 years of age. He's giving a general reference here as to the time when Jesus enters the ministry. Luke says, uh, tells us, or we, we already looked at this, that he was born around 6 B.C. And we know that he would that this was during the reign of Herod the Great, and Herod the Great died in 4 BC. So the wise men probably came to uh, honor the Lord Jesus Christ when he was roughly two years of age, because they came to a house. They didn't come to the stable, and they weren't, uh, as you see pictures there at Christmas time. The wise men there in the stable, right there with the hay and the the uh, a manger scene and the shepherds gathered around there and the animals in the background, that didn't happen. <laughs> that w- that's not what happened. So we know that Herod died in 4 B.C. So Jesus was roughly two years old at that time. So that would, be, that would make him born around 6 B.C. But... We also know that then that he began his ministry about 28 AD 28. So this would make him then roughly 32 to 33 years of age. And we mentioned last week there that, that, that John the Baptist was 33 when he began his ministry. Again, don't read, don't misread Luke. He's very careful here to generalize his statement being about 30 years of age, so where so here then we have Jesus ready to destroy the works of the devil. In fact, my message is entitled "The Battle Lines Drawn." 
Jesus is dealing right now with Satan. Isn't it interesting that he begins his ministry dealing with the devil? And he's ready to destroy the works of the devil. And how would he do so? Being the son of man and the son of God. Being the son of man, Daniel reveals that Jesus would be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Remember that. Because in the temptation, Satan is going to offer him the kingdoms of the world. God's already promised them to him. Said that he would receive them. And that uh, that kingdom would be over all peoples, nations, languages who would serve him. His kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom that shall not be destroyed. This is according to Daniel chapter 7 verse 14. So thus the Jews expected their Messiah to be a victorious warrior who would destroy the enemies of Israel, reestablish the throne of David, and rule over the cosmos forever. As the Son of Man, how would Jesus then assume authority to rule over the nations? On the other hand, He's also the Son of God. This is, a, this is His divine person. He is the second person of the Trinity. And because of this, he, he possessed great power. We're told that He created all things and that there's nothing that was created that He did not create. So then how would He use this power in this, at this time and in this way? And a very subtle here, but a very important issue is generally missed. To use the power... His power, as the Jews expected their Messiah would come, He would have actually misused that power and it would have cost Him His office and mission. How so? You see, this would have resulted in a tragic failure. And that's what this temptation is all about. It is setting establishing the fact that Jesus Christ is going to bring in this kingdom promised in the way that God intended, not what Jesus wants, not what the Jews want, or anybody else. So, uh, we have here a powerful truth that's set forth. Jesus would have been guilty of self-interest had he listened to Satan. But we read here that Messiah pursued a true and proper course in the kingdom's establishment. For we read in chapter 4 verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led, or literally driven, by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now what does, that, what does that verse tell us? It tells us that Jesus did not act on His own. 
He was fully controlled by the Holy Spirit. He's God. God come in the flesh. And He is the Son of Man, the perfect Son of Man. But He did not act on His own in any way, shape, or form. Everything He did was controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. Fully surrendered to the will of God, led by the Spirit of God, not by His own desires. Now that brings us to His time in the wilderness. Wilderness. Remember John the Baptist spent time in the wilderness. He didn't go to Jerusalem. And there was a reason for that. And we spoke about that. Now we have Jesus in the wilderness. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And we, we, we kind of have an idea where that was. It was a mountain that was located on the western side of the Jordan near Jericho. The Spirit led Jesus to this desolate place, a wilderness, a place of testing and proving. There he was for 40 days, which is the number of testing and probation. Just as Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days, the number of testing and probation. A very interesting parallel here is noted. And in Moses' case, it had to do with Moses, but it, and it also had to do with the people themselves. Just as Jesus in the wilderness had to do with Jesus himself, but it also had to do with you and I who are believers and followers of Jesus. I wasn't anywhere near that 40, 40 uh, days of testing, but Jesus was tested for me. And that is a powerful truth. So here's, here's Moses. It was, it was the, the people here also who were tested in this situation. And, and that it, it's shown here by the fact that when Moses did not return, the people failed the test by convincing Aaron to build them a golden calf to worship, crediting the calf with their deliverance from Egypt. And here too, people often read this, don't really understand what's going on here, but let me try to explain this to you. Because in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 4, we read, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. These are your gods. There was only one golden calf. So how could that be gods? These are your, your gods, O Israel. And the, the, the answer is in this little word, Elohim. Elohim. Actually, I would suggest that it should read like this. This is your Elohim, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The calf represented the supernatural deities or the supernatural entities that the sons of God 
belonging to the divine council who were given charge of mankind by God. What was it? What were the Israelites doing? They were suggesting that it wasn't God himself who brought them out of the land of Egypt, but it was members of, a member of the divine council that did that, who is now represented by this golden calf. We read there in, in, uh, in Psalm 82 and verse 6, you are, son, you are God's, your Elohim, sons of the Most High, all of you. And he, he spoke, was spoken there to the divine council. The Israelites wanted to attribute their deliverance to a secondary spiritual entities, not to Yahweh himself. Now the Lord knew that, and he was using this to test Moses. So Moses, 40 days in the wilderness, then uh, we would ask, how would then would he respond to the sin of the people? So we read that while he's still in the wilderness, that the Lord informed him that the people had sinned by demanding this calf be built. And God said, it is a stiff-necked people. Verse number 9 there of, of 32. Exodus 32. The Lord then proposed uh, a solution. And the proposed solution was this, that he would destroy those people and that, that he would make of Moses a great nation. Now what if God told you that? I mean, that's God speaking to you. Whoa. I kind of like that. <laughs> I'm going to be, I'm going to kind of be important. And this is, this is the will of God. This is what God's saying. I'm going to destroy the children of Israel and I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, what's wrong with that? See, Moses could have pridefully enjoyed the Lord's attention and submitted himself to this plan. But Moses understood who God was and what he had previously declared to be his purpose. Therefore, Moses refused by reminding the Lord that it was he, Yahweh, who had delivered the people from Egypt. And if he destroyed them... In the wilderness, this would make the Lord look bad. And the Egyptians would have attributed an evil motive to the Lord. Then, on top of that, the Lord also would have broken his promise to Abraham where he told him that he would make his offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven. So then how did Yahweh respond to Moses? <laughs> when Moses said, no, no. Says the Lord relented. <laughs> 
I think that took Moses back. But the story doesn't end there. The Lord ordered then the people to leave Mount Sinai and go to the promised land without him. He refused to go with them. So in chapter 33 and verse 3 says, I will not go up with you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. Again, Moses responded, See, you have said to me, Bring this up this people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you, that I may know you. Wow. And in order, that is in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. He reminded him again. Why? Back there in Deuteronomy 32. The Lord said, I'm going to give all of the nations over to the sons of God, but Israel is mine. See, Moses knows the history of the people of God, and he knows what God has said concerning them. And he's not going to let God change his mind about that. Wow. And what was the Lord's response? I'll go with you. And I will give you rest. Wow. So here's the point. Moses demonstrated true humility. Not in not taking the Lord's words as an opportunity to promote himself. And this is what the Lord was demonstrating. Moses rested on the word of God and trusted the word for this weak and sinful nation. Just the way we need to do. We need to learn just to rest on the word of God, trust the promises of God, lean on the power of God, know that we must walk by faith and not by sight. So here, we see the connection here between Moses and Jesus in this. Moses was more interested in God's glory by God's will being done than by being, than by being tempted to see uh, this as an occasion of self-promotion. And this is exactly what Jesus is facing too in the wilderness. And this is how you need to le learn to read the temptation of Christ. Wills Jesus succumb to Satan's subtle suggestion of how his proposals would help him to achieve the ends for which he came into the world? All three of these are designed to do that. 
Would Jesus do God's will or would he succumb to self-promotion? Follow the expectations of the Jews. Now notice, now then, that it's a lonely, rugged, difficult place here without food or bodily necessities. But it was the will of God for him to be there, for the Spirit of God drove him there. Mark's Gospel reads, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted of Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. All three Gospels inform the reader that during this time, this 40 days, Jesus was being tempted by the devil. It wasn't after the 40 days here. It was all during that 40-day period. Being tempted by the devil. The term used here for tempted is, is a an infinitive of purpose, and that purpose was for him to engage with Satan. It was desire, a desire. God initiated this confrontation, not Satan. God put him there. Jesus was to prove himself far superior to the first Adam, and thus qualified to redeem the sons of the first Adam who had succumbed to the temptation. So his being tempted then also presents another problem. And here and that's Jesus was sinless. He came to this wilderness to prove himself free of sinful pro- propensity. It might also be asked that if Jesus was the God man without a sinful nature, how could the temptation be more than just a show? I think it was not more than just that it was a reality. However, Hebrews explains this. Jesus, in every way, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4, verse 15. That, that's a, that is a powerful truth. Jesus was tempted like we are tempted. But he didn't sin. Jesus was as Adam before the fall. He did not possess a sinful nature. Neither did he have any antecedent sins. Neither did Adam. He was truly in a state of innocence. Just like Adam. However, unlike Jesus, Adam sinned in the temptation. Now Jesus was being tested as Adam was. As the second Adam, Jesus had the ability to either sin or not to sin. We have to accept that. He was free to yield or not to yield to Satan. Indeed, in every respect, he was tempted as we are. Yet without sin. The very point here that Hebrews makes is that Jesus, although truly tempted, remained firm and resisted to glorious victory, earning the right to redeem those under sin. For more 
and more here, he tested, he, his test earned him the ability to sympathize with those in their own weakness. He was truly our great high priest. Aren't you glad? That brings me to this, the temptation comes to humans in three areas. But take note here that it is not the depths of depravity that in the depths of depravity that these temptations come. Satan seeks to tempt mankind in their highest natures to encourage subtle pride and self-sufficiency. He wants us he wants to take us off of dependency on God to rely on our own abilities. The Greek term that's often translated desire can also be translated lust. It can be used of proper desires, such as when Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That was not wrong. Or it can be used of sinful desires, not in the will of God. For we read there in Romans thirteen fourteen, we are to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. To make, to, to make provision for the flesh then would be wrong. Because sinful humans did not honor God, Him as God, nor give thanks to him, they became futile in their thinking. And we read there in Romans 1.24, God gave them up to the lusts or to the desires of their own hearts to impurity. Jesus was tempted. And to overcome that temptation would be to provide a way for his own to overcome their sinful desires and to serve God with proper ones. So therefore, believers are exhorted there in Romans 6, 13, 12 and 13, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make, it, to make you obey its passions. And here's the subtlety. We often think, read this and we think of the, some depth of depravity. Some awful sin, drug abuse or sexual abuse. But most of the time, it is in such a subtle way of self-promotion, self-dependence, that we somehow think, well, because I belong to Jesus now, I'm a good person and I can do better. We can be led by our own sinful desire to be a good person. And that does not honor God. So Satan tempted Christ through three basic and, but, and noble desires. Physical appetite, aesthetic, his aesthetic appreciation, and spiritual ambition. Listen to in Genesis chapter 3, Eve saw the tree was good for food. That is, God made us dependent on food to sustain life. He told Adam and Eve, all the trees, the fruit of the trees in the garden are for your food consumption. 
but the tree that's in the midst of the garden, don't eat of it. It's not wrong to eat. And we get hungry. Jesus did. Secondly, it says, and that it was a delight to the eyes. Here's another, here's another blessing. God has made all things beautiful. We just took a tour of the garden over there. Glorious, beautiful. Ha! Ah, that's not it's not wrong to look upon nature. Last night there I I I was over here to turn the water on the lawn and and I was looking at the sky. It was around seven o'clock. Over here it's just beautiful cloud formations and in beautiful colors and back over to the east and over here to the south and to the west. And I just stood there with wonder and amazement at the beauty of it. That's aesthetic appreciation. God made us to appreciate things like this. So Eve saw that the tree was a delight to the eyes. And then thirdly, the tree was to be desired to make one wise. What's wrong with that? God wants his own to be filled with wisdom. Just read the Proverbs. He wants us to be wise. None of these things are wrong in themselves. The problem here was that God made it very clear to Adam and Eve that they were not to eat of that particular tree. Thus, Eve succumbed to Satan's suggestion, disobeyed God, took the fruit, ate it, gave it to her husband, he ate it. Now Jesus is going to be faced with temptation in the very same way, but unlike the first Adam, Jesus relied on the power of the Spirit of God and the Word of God to resist and to overcome the temptation. He met every attack by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. But note then the approach that Satan took. If you are the Son of God, or since, it's a third, it's a first class conditional clause, since you are the Son of God. Satan knew who, who Jesus was. Since you're the Son of God, which which uh, implies here that you possess all these creative powers. You made it all. Satan would have to argue, you made me. <laughs> so then he said, just command this stone to become bread. You're creative. You could just say to that stone, be a loaf of bread. And it would be a loaf of bread. Satan was not doubting Jesus was the Son of God. Rather, he was appealing to his power to do a miracle and transform a stone that probably resembled a loaf of bread into a real loaf of bread. Since you're the Son of God and possess all power, you could satisfy easily satisfy your hunger by just saying to this stone, Be bread. And eating it. Just like that. What was wrong with that? 
problem here is that he tempted Jesus to work a miracle for his own benefit. What was the will of God? See here, you see how subtle Satan is. Well, you can do this. It'll, it's just this is this takes care of a problem. You got a problem. The problem is you're hungry. You could just easily take care of that problem by saying to that stone, "Be, be bread," and then picking it up and eating it. There's nothing wrong with being with eating to satisfy your hunger. God provides bread for you to eat. As with Eve in the garden, the issue was not that it was wrong to eat, but whether that what was eaten was in keeping with the will of God. Would God permit him to starve? He could easily justify himself, and therefore he could convince himself that he could even serve others by this same power. He could feed the hungry, because people are more than spirits. They need food to sustain their bodies and be nourished. He could have turned stones in, into bread when bread was not available to serve. Did not Jesus multiply loaves and fish to satisfy a hungry multitude? But Jesus was not fooled. He would trust the Heavenly Father who knew His every need. He would be fed in God's time, not his own. Thus Jesus said to him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. There's more to life than bread. What? Matthew adds, Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 3, 4. Actually, Satan was tempting Jesus to question the Word of God in the circumstances of his hunger. The Bible's not going to make give you nourishment. It's not going to take away your hunger. Not the Bible. Yeah, but maybe that's what God wants from you. See, that brings us into this question of fasting. I will not go there right now. Second of all, the order of the temptation is a little different than Matthew and, and Matthew and Luke. We, we read Mark; he did, he doesn't even go into the details at all, but Matthew and Luke do, and the three temptations, but they're in not in the same order. They they begin with the turning the bread into or the stone into bread. The second temptation in Matthew was the pinnacle of the temple, where it's that is the third in Luke's. So the question is, why are they out of order? And I believe there's a reason. And the reason is that uh, Matthew is, is dealing with circumstances it, as it relates to the Jews and, and, and in that particular order. But, so it's, a, it's more of a historical thing, whereas Luke is more theological in it. And, and uh, I'm not, I won't go into the details of that right now. But... Uh, uh, the question here is, and so the second temptation is the 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 uh, uh, for for Luke is the question of the kingdom of God. 
And here, uh, although it doesn't state it as such, it it, it uh, deals with Christ being the Son of Man. And that Jesus came to prepare the way for the kingdom of God to come on earth. Thus, the second temptation has to do with Christ's spiritual ambition. He came preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is his ambition to bring it in. So, Satan says, hey, I'm going I'm, I'm to give you a shortcut. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer at the hands of the Jews and the Romans. You don't have to be put to shame. And he takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And that, that was a, that's a miraculous thing. And he, had, he could do that. Every kingdom on the face of the earth since Adam has been controlled by Satan himself. Every ruler that's been seated upon a throne, save the rulers that God put there, were under the control of Satan himself. And he shows them all of these and says, I, I, have, I have power and authority over them. To you I will give the, all this authority, this right and jurisdiction and their glory. Just think of Nebuchadnezzar, man standing up there on the parapet of Babylon looking around all, all that big uh, he had accomplished his chest stuck out with pride. Man, look at me! Ha, whoa! Jesus, you can have it too. All of it. All their glory. It has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. Now, there, there's a, there's, here again, there's a subtle thing. It's been delivered to me. Who delivered it to him? Adam did. Adam did when he ate the fruit. And he says, and I give it to whom I will. And that's true. Jesus did not question Satan's right to offer the kingdoms to him. He didn't say, hey, uh-uh, back off of this. You don't own them. God does. No, uh-uh. Satan had usurped that right from the first Adam. Because God gave that dominion to Adam. That he would be have dominion over the works of his hands. And again, it, it was not God's will for Jesus to bring in the kingdom. I mean, was it not God's will? He could bypass the cross, realize the prize without suffering. Jesus was far superior to Satan. So he could go along with it and then throw Satan off. Easily. They were alone in the wilderness. There was nobody to witness this. He could have said, okay, I'll just do this. He could have bowed his head and took a knee and in a moment's time worshipped Satan. And then he would have received all those kingdoms. He would not have had to suffer death 
But suppose Jesus had received the kingdoms from Satan. He would then have been the agent of Satan and like all rulers before him. See, the very moral structure of the universe would have collapsed. God would have been dethroned and Satan would have achieved his one desire. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God and I will set my throne on high and I will make myself like the Most High. Isaiah 14, 13 and 14. No, Jesus came to defeat Satan, not elevate him. So here the Savior rebuked the devil by citing Deuteronomy 6.13 and there in verse 8 says, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. That's for us too. That brings us to the third temptation which is an appeal to Christ's aesthetic nature. He took Him to Jerusalem to the highest pinnacle of the temple. And here's another very subtle issue that might be missed in the casual reading. There's a biblical foundation for this suggestion. Malachi prophesied that Messiah will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's Malachi 3.1. Now what if Jesus had jumped off that pinnacle and come floating down into the main courtyard of the temple? Whoa! Where did that come from? Look! Hey! There's the Messiah! You see what I'm saying? Ah! But again, Satan, and Satan here assumes Jesus' deity. If you are the Son of God, or since you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then Satan also used Scripture to support his claim. And he quotes here from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You don't have to worry about her being hurt. God's going to take care of you. As you come floating down, those angels are going to be guarding you and keeping you from hurt, bruising your heel on a stone. Wow. Here Satan took a beautiful promise and misquoted it. Twisting it in a way to provoke Jesus to answer, to question God and to doubt his word. How did Satan misquote it? By failing to add a certain phrase. In all your ways. What did that mean? to guard you in all your ways. Jesus' way was God's way, not his own. So Jesus met the challenge here again with the word of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
What does that mean? Obey God. Follow his word. Don't put him to the test. Don't bring, bring him stuff up and say, Lord, I'm going to put myself in a position and, I'm going to, and you're going to have to answer me and, and you're going to have to work for me. No, that's putting God to the test. We live by submissive obedience to God. Not challenging God. I'm afraid there's an awful lot of evangelical Christians out there today that are guilty of this very thing. Challenging God and putting Him to the test in order to fulfill their own desires and plans rather than God's will. We must never put God to the test. We must never do some ra something rash and expect God to rescue us in a miracle. With a miracle. And so then Luke concludes, And when the devil had ended the every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He's not done. <laughs> he's desperate. And he's not going to quit. But Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to, to Galilee. He was successful. Very successful. Oh, may we learn to live our lives like Jesus lived his and return in the power of the Spirit. Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the opportunity to consider this, this important aspect of the life of Christ and how it applies and appeal and, and to us. We too are tempted. We're tempted in every way. Jesus was tempted, we're tempted. And, there, and Lord, we're to resist temptation. If we resist temptation, He'll flee from us. Lord, help us to understand that one of the greatest and most subtle ways that Satan deals with us is to offer us something that will be to our benefit, but it'll be out of the will of God. It'll be good. There'll be nothing wrong with the thing itself, except that it will cause us to depend on ourselves, to rely on our own abilities. Not to follow Him exclusively and submit to the will of God in every way. Teach us, Lord, to walk by faith and not by sight. And we'll praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.